Let's jump into this. We're going to pick up where we left off. Now, we've been talking about this identity crisis, the identity crisis we have in the church today. We are talking about this this morning, that the church today, if you rewind 50 years, is unrecognizable. The stuff that we're dealing with in the church, not dealing with morally, socially, any of that kind of stuff. You expect, you know, I don't know if you know this, but ducks quack, dogs bark, children whine, you know, all of that, it goes with the territory. So... It's kind of like what Paul was talking about, like, when you're in the world, you expect to act like that. But when you're a part of the body of Christ, you expect to act like that. And we've got a muddying of the waters, because now what we've done is now we've transformed things to fit narratives that we like and feel good. Today, Christianity has become all about us. Us as the individuals. Us as what, what's in it for me. Do I like that song? Do I not like that song? Do I like that uh, sermon? Do I not like that sermon? Oh, they don't serve the right kind of coffee. I'm going to go to the different church. I mean, I've heard all of these different stories through the years. Again, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I've got friends of mine in ministry around the country. I mean, it just, it amazes me. It just amazes me of the things that people will come up with to complain about. It's amazing. It's like, how do you get through your life? It just amazes me. You know, I've told you guys this story before, but I'm going to tell you again because I like some of my stories. I don't care if you do or not. It's my, it's my time. Thanks, Adam. You just made my Christmas card list. So here's the thing. You know, the church I left before we came here was in a mall, very active area and stuff. And we put in a child check-in center. And you know why you do that? Because when you come to pick up said child, when we don't know everybody because there's 400 people that go to this church and all of that, we want to make sure that the person who brought the kid is the person who picks up the kid and we needed a way to track that so we're trying to protect children and one lady started complaining i hate these things it took you the first time to set up took you three minutes and after that it was 15 seconds all it took check the kid in piece of cake and this lady complains like man i left my last church because of one of those because we're trying to protect the kids you know we're in an active mall i don't know if you know this but the world around us has lost their ever-loving mind they are crazy, and those crazy people out walking the hallways, they could just wander in. We don't know who they are. We're trying to protect the kids. And on a side note, there was a divorced couple, and it was not going well, and the, the father had no visitation rights, and there was a concern that he may come in and try to take the kids. And what's a kid going to do? He's going to go to dad. And if we got a volunteer that doesn't realize what's going on, that was the whole point. But they didn't like it, because it's become all about us. And no matter who it is, this, this stuff has revolved around time. Do you guys realize that somebody complained about Paul's preaching? And we're all sitting there like, man, we spent all the time reading Paul's preaching. Yeah. Somebody didn't like it, mostly the Pharisees, but other people and the Jews. They didn't like it. Somebody didn't like the words of Jesus, and we're like, how could you not like that? Boy, if Jesus was here in my time, I'd be different. No, you wouldn't. You'd be exactly the same. You can go through all through. I was telling you guys last week that Brother Hagen, who's the founder of the Word of Faith Ministry and all that kind of stuff, you know, pastored a church. And they, I mean, they just made his life miserable. His sermons were too long. He kept teaching the same stuff over and over again. And they would complain about it. He said, if you guys ever get it, maybe I can stop teaching about this. They're like, but we understand it. Well, then why don't you act like it? He was pretty harsh with them. You know, it's like no matter who it is or what it is, they just would find something to complain about. And the reason we do that is because we've made it all about us. Which begs the question, what is it really all about? When we talk about an identity crisis, what is the responsibility and characteristics of the church today? Well, it's no different than it was 2,000 years ago. The ministry and the work of the born-again believers has never changed 
We have changed, but it has never changed. We have changed the formats and the way that we do things, but it has never changed. The principles are still the same. Do you guys realize that there is not one time that Jesus or any of the apostles ever said, listen, this is what we need to do. We need you guys to make disciples, and here's how we want you to do it. We want you to invite your friends to church. Those words were never uttered. They never said, hey, you need to have a big outreach event and bring in bands and concerts. They need to have funnel cakes and inflatables, and tropical snow. They never said that stuff. Those are all great things. That's what I'm talking about. But they never said that. But that's what we've done today. Oh, you know, he never said either. He said, hey, listen, you should have contests where people come in and they can win money if they're their first time guest. Never done that. You're laughing. This is all stuff that we have seen time and time again. People with good hearts and good intentions with just backwards principles. They're trying to reach the lost. They're just kind of going about it contrary to Scripture. What did he say? You, individual, body of Christ, go out there when your friends, loved ones, neighbors, all of that. Your life is a ministry of God. And whether you like it or not, you are showing Jesus every day, even on the bad days. So what is the role of the church? What does a Christian look like? What do they talk like? How do they act? No matter what's going on in the world, how do they respond? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if we are a new creation, that means we are not what we were. We are something new. Shouldn't we act like it? Begs the question, what's the new thing? The new thing is the image of Christ. You are now his imager, his representative. So when you're living in your life, in your world, you are now a representative of Christ to those around you. How's it going? Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is an enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, do you want to be in the flesh? No. Who is Paul speaking to here? Not unbelievers. Do you know why? They didn't read his letters into the church and what's he telling these believers in Rome don't be carnally minded be spiritually minded what you do in your flesh can't please God we need to think like God thinks we need to take every thought captive 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 I Paul Myself in pleading with you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you realize that this is a mandate? It's a a mandate by Paul to do what? Take those thoughts captive. Because the warfare that we face is not a natural one. We can argue till we're blue in the face. And all of that. What we're facing is something spiritual. Reacting carnally does not take care of spiritual matters. And so what he's saying is these are the things that are coming against what? The knowledge of God. These strongholds and high things and all. They're coming against the knowledge of God. Well, what is that? The knowledge of God is who he is and who I am in relationship with him and how I worship him and ultimately who my enemy is. You see, we have to begin to understand these and that's why we've gone through these. And I know for some of you, you've heard bits of this before and I get that. But for others, sometimes this is new information and I'll tell you what, I sat through an entire class teaching on these principles and you know what blew my mind? Is that how much I didn't know because I thought I had it figured out. Like, who is God? 
Seems like a kind of arbitrary answer, a very simple question to answer, but it's not. Because when people say, who is God, they say it from a perspective of experience. They say it from like, well, I think God is this, and I think God is that, and I showed that to you. But how has God revealed himself is what matters. Because what you say, while it is important, ultimately doesn't matter if it's not grounded in truth. And if it's not grounded in truth, you know what we call those things? Not truths. Not truths can get you in trouble. There are things that we do and we don't even know why. We, we ask these questions and we're like, well, why do we do this and why do we do that? I've got a, a man who is in his 60s that called me just one month ago. That as he was reading the Bible, he just had this revelation. He's like, I don't have any idea why we do this stuff. It was good questions. He never thought about it. He began to think. Why? Because things started coming against the knowledge of God. So who is God? God is who He is, the creator of all things, the one who sent His Son into the world, died for mankind. This is all the important stuff. Things that we know, but we don't know. We think we know, and we say the right words, but we really don't know, because we're not living in a life as God has revealed Himself. Let me give you an example of how this works. It's no different than I have been in multiple churches throughout the years, and I'll be preaching, and I'll be, maybe I'll be preaching about scriptures, okay? I love to teach through scripture and go through this thing and understanding of what it is and how it works and why we understand it. Because this is not chicken soup for the soul. This isn't something where you open up and get something to make you feel good for the day. This is how God has revealed himself. And in this, we have to say, well, okay, we believe that this is the undefiled, unadulterated word of God. That every word is true. And every letter is accurate. And every number is placed by the Holy Spirit. How this thing was placed together. 66 books, 40 authors over... There we are. So, as we go through the scriptures, we're like, okay, so what is this? We're understanding what it is, what it is, and all of that. And I always say, I'm like, how many of you guys believe that this is the absolute word of God? Do you realize that when you're in a church setting... Almost every hand will go up. Almost every one, like without a doubt. And I say, well, how many of you guys have actually read every letter, number, page? And a few hands go up. And I'm like, you haven't even read the whole thing and you believe it's all true? Why is that? Because they've never been taught to question anything. You realize this will face scrutiny. It's no different than if I ask somebody, like, well, why? Do you believe that God still heals today? And you know the overarching answer is, if the answer is yes, they'll say, because I was healed, grandma was healed, mom was healed, somebody was healed. What should it be? Because God has clearly revealed that in the scripture. You guys see how important this is? So while opinions matter, if they're not grounded in truth, they're irrelevant. So once we have an understanding of who God is and realize we did that in two weeks, you can't do that, at least thoroughly, then who am I in relationship to him? Because that matters, big time. And as you begin to understand how important mankind was to the event of God, so much so that he died for mankind and nothing else, because he's going to destroy the world. He's going to recreate the world, but he saved mankind. That's big. And then understanding what it goes from being a servant to a son, that's big. Those are words that we just throw around loosely, but we don't realize how, how powerful those were to a first century Jew. And then understanding that who I am matters, but whose I am is every bit as important. Because we see the separation of the sheep from the goats, and you see the separation from the saved and the unsaved. And as we saw last week as we went through this, we see the separation from the fruitful and the unfruitful. Those who do something for the Lord, 
versus those who just are the Lord's. There's these separations that go, and that's what leads us into the next part. It's understanding whose I am, but more importantly, who I belong to. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 19 says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your very own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Who does it belong to? Your body belongs to God. Who should be making decisions on what you do with it? Romans 14, verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Who do we belong to? Whose are we? We are the Lord's. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How did we become his? His Son gave himself for us. It's no longer I who live. You know, this is the problem. We've got an I mentality and that it's about me and what I want and what I want to do and what I want to hear and what I want to sing. And the way the service is performed and all of that, it's all about us. We won't get uncomfortable for God. We'll just do what we want, and the problem with that is, is it will lead to a generation of people brought up thinking that they are the center of the universe, and they are not, and that's where we are. You see, who God is and who I am in relationship matter. Understanding whose you are will lead us to the next question, is how do we worship God? When we use the term worship, it is completely adulterated from what it was. And we're going to dig into this a little bit today. And I want you to bear with me for a moment because I want you to see something in this. And I know, again, some of this is going to be recap, but some of this is going to be new stuff in the sense that we have to be able to biblically define what God's worship is and how we perform it. Because when you say worship, where does your mind go? Music. Every time, because that's all we have ever known. And here's the best part, right? You go to a worship service, you know, I mean, we just got done with, with worship and whatnot. We're worshiping God and be like, man, that was really good. And you know why we say that? Either the musicians were talented, which is not always the case, or they played the songs we like, which is also not always the case. And then it's bad if they're not so good or they play songs. Oh, man, I can't stand that song. Listen, I grew up in a generation that if you didn't play Shout to the Lord every Sunday, you didn't have church. I'm okay if I never hear that song again. And it was a great song. Well, they wore it out. You see, the thing is, is that when we think worship, we think music. Why do we think that? Because our experience doesn't line up biblically. Our experience is worship and music intertwined. And it's just simply a part. Let's go. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. We're going to start at verse 7 so you catch a little bit of context that was going on. So let's start at the beginning. When we're talking about Scripture, what do we do? First thing we ask, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, we don't actually know because he didn't sign it. But when I taught through the Hebrews on Wednesday night, I tell you I believe it's Paul, and I went through a whole myriad of reasons why. But who is it written to? Anyone want to take a stab at that one? The Hebrews. There you go. Y'all must be homeschooled. Okay. <laughs> verse 7, remember those who rule over you. Who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Now, let's stop. When it says rule over you, what does that mean? We always think from authoritarian position like a slave and a master type thing. But when it says rule, it also says those who lead over you. So this is referring to spiritual leaders. That could be a pastor. That could also be a disciple and discipler. 
who we should all have. Do you realize that everybody in this room who is a follower of Christ should have somebody that they are pouring into every single day? Discipling? If you have children, guess what? You got some. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart is established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So they're addressing a very specific thing that's going on about these strange and various doctrines. But how do you avoid those? You stay back faithful to truth, what Scripture is. So, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. But we read this, we read it quickly, we go over this, and we don't ask questions. But he is referencing here a specific form of worship that took place with the Hebrews. Very specific. So going back to verse 10, it says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. All right? Who are those people? That would be the Levitical priesthood. They were the ones that served the tabernacle of the temple. The body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burnt outside the camp. Do you guys realize that that's a clue to something? When it talks about that, it's very specific. And then it goes, therefore Jesus. Now because of this, Jesus does what? That he might sanctify the people with his own blood outside the gates. So whatever Jesus did is a mirrored image of something that took place with the priesthood at that altar. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside of the camp, and we bear his reproach. For have, or here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, who's him? Jesus. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That's the term. Sacrifice of praise. We hear it. We've read it. We say it. We even wrote songs about it. Some of you have been around for a while. Remember those songs. They're very up. Yeah, you're singing it right now. Now it's in your head. You're welcome for that. All day long, she's going to be singing that, okay? But the sacrifice of praise to God. We think we know what that means. We assume that we know what that means. We just kind of cursorily throw it out there. But we don't think about, number one, what the word sacrifice means. And the second part of that is what the word praise is meaning. And what is it? It says in the New Testament era, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. What does that mean? The words you speak is the praise that you give God now because we have a difference in, in systems. But to fully grasp the enormity of this, we've got to go back to everybody's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. Because I know some of y'all just sit at home and like, I'm picking up Leviticus. It's good nighttime reading. Maybe it's good bathroom reading for you. I don't know, but whatever. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, okay? We're going to go through this and I'll explain it. Which we shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil. 
unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the, sac- of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear its guilt. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire, and as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as a human uncleanness, an unclean animal, an abominable unclean thing, or who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, why are we reading this and how do they tie together? If you look in the margins of your Bible, you will notice that when it talks about the sacrifice of praise, it is actually referencing back to this very passage. Now, suddenly the fruit of your lips giving thanks and praise to God doesn't sound so bad, does it? Because this is intense. The longest discussion in this chapter here, dealing with the peace offering, is like it, it's the longest sacrifice. Like it, It's got more details here than any other. It's the sort of offering that was appropriate in situation. It was given as an expression of thanks. So it may be called a thank offering or something like that. Uh, they may fulfill a vow, and it was an act of worship. So think about it. Sacrifice of praise is actually referencing an actual sacrifice because this is how they did it. And so part of it belonged to the priest, and part of it would be eaten by the worshiper, but it had a prescribed amount of time. You had to eat it. It was very involved. But what we need to understand is this was a voluntary offering. That's important. Could the worshiper just come any way he wants and perform this? No, it talks about you can't be unclean, you can't touch this, you have to do it in a prescribed... It was very, very specific. It's almost as if God wants to be worshipped in a very specific manner, and any old way does not work. What a concept, who would have guessed? Now, let's go back to Hebrews 13 just for a moment. And let's begin to break this down. It says, remember those who rule over you, you who have spoken the word of God, you whose faith you follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by, or carried about with various and strange doctrine, for it is, uh, it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, which have not profited those who have occupied them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. I could say the sacrifice of peace or thanksgiving to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You see, you have to understand something about the sacrificial system. There were five basic sacrifices. Okay? There are more details about them. But there were two that were absolutely mandatory. They were required to do it at prescribed times or in certain situations. The first one was the sin offering. 
And the second one was called the guilt or the trespass offering. And it's kind of self-explanatory. If you broke a commandment, a law, something like that, they would have to bring this sin offering. We're not going to go through all the details of that, but just understand it was very involved. And they would sacrifice the animal, and then they would be, that sin would be atoned for for the time. That was the mandatory offering. There was two, but three of them were absolutely voluntary. The first one being the burnt offering, the second one being the grain offering, and the third one being called the peace or the thanksgiving offering. Now, when we talk about the sacrifice of praise to God, why does this mimic the peace offering, the voluntary offering? Does God not mandate that he be worshipped? Yes, he does. But does he give you the freedom to do so when and if you choose to? Yes, he does. But you see, the reason it's a peace offering and the reason that it is a voluntary offering is because the required offerings, you see, it doesn't ever talk about in the New Testament how we are to bring a sin offering, how we're to bring a guilt offering. It never says that. It only references the voluntary ones. And the reason for that is Jesus fulfilled every one of those offerings. This isn't a New Testament principle. This is actually all throughout the Old Testament. Let me read you some of these psalms here. Psalm chapter 50, verse 23 says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. When it says sacrifice of thanksgiving, it means the sacrifice of thanksgiving. We don't think like that, though, do we? We don't realize, like, wait a minute, they literally had to bring an animal, had to be killed, and it was skinned, and they'd eat part, and burn part, and do this, and all of that. We think, oh, sacrifice of thanksgiving, yay, let's clap on beat, white folk. You know, I mean, that's what we think. Psalm 107, verse 21 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Psalm 56, verse 12. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Psalm 116, verse 17. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 66, verse 13. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. A burnt offering was another voluntary offering. Do you guys get it? These were literally sacrifices being made. I will offer these. I will do this. I will bring this. Because they were voluntary. They had the choice to do it. The sin and the guilt offering, they didn't have a choice. Because if they broke any of those rules, they had to do this. Otherwise, their sins were not atoned for. They were considered unclean, and therefore, they could take no place in the covenant whatsoever at that point. See, we have to get this. These are not little cute words that we have made them into. These are little events that were taking place and things they had to do. And suddenly, the fruit of your lips giving thanks and praise to God doesn't sound so bad. But let's, let's go a little further than this because I want you to see this in action. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And just to give you a little bit of backstory, this is about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. And there weren't a lot of them, but he was one of them. So King Ahaz dies. He's out of the picture, but he was wicked. He sacrificed to all the, the, the gods of Damascus and stuff like that. One of the things that he said, he says, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Now, let me ask you this. That was the statement that he made, King Ahaz made. King of Israel, okay, important, should know better, right? 
Because what did God do for Israel? I don't know. A whole lot of stuff. The whole Red Sea thing comes to mind. So it shouldn't take much to understand what they're supposed to do. But he says, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, the Syrians, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. In other words, what did he just say? Well, I want something, so therefore I will move over here to get what I want. Does that sound like church today? It does. I'm going to go over to that church because their music is better. I'm going to go over to that church because their preaching is better. I'm going to go to that church because they have prophets that come in, or they got these guys that come in and just do all sorts of crazy things. Like, that is about us. Ahaz made it about him, not God. But watch what Hezekiah does. First, or Second Chronicles chapter 29. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. So he was a young man. And he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. He reigned for a long time. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now stop. When did he get started? Right away. He went in and began to clean up. The doors of the house of the Lord is a reference to what? The temple. Because what Ahaz had done is sacrificed to the gods of the Damascus inside the temple. He had removed all the articles that belonged to God and cut some of them up and did all sorts of different stuff and began to worship the gods of other nations in God's temple. Verse 4, Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. When that says rubbish, that is a reference to all of the things that Ahaz had been using. Okay, we, again, these are they're very specific. So what's the first thing he tells him to do? Sanctify yourself, Levites. Who are the Levites? That is the, the, the family of priests. They were the ones that acted as a mediator between Israel and God. So they had to sanctify themselves, and then they had to sanctify the house of the Lord. In other words, cleanse it, set it apart. That's what sanctification means. For our fathers have trespassed and have done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on Him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the uh, lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Why was that important? Because they were commanded to do so. See, God had a prescribed way that the priesthood was supposed to act. Ahaz put an end to that. Therefore, so because of what they had done, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. And he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Now that's so powerful. Whom did God choose to service the Israel and be the go-between between God and the nation of Israel? The Levites. They were chosen. He said, don't be negligent. Don't cut corners. Do it God's way because you were chosen. It's an honor that you get to do this, to serve him and minister to him and burn incense. You know who doesn't get to do that? King Hezekiah. He wasn't chosen for that. 
Let's go on. Verse 12. Then these Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasseh, the Joel, the son of Azariah, and the sons of the Kohathites, and the sons of Mariah, uh, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, and the sons of Jehalel, and the Gershonites, and Joah, the son of Zimmah, and Eden, the son of Joah, and the sons of Elisvan, and Shimri, of Jael, and the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Madaniah, of the sons of Heman, Jethiel, and Shimei, and the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. Now there will be a test after this, so remember those. Verse 15, and they gathered their brethren. They sanctified themselves. What did they do? They went through the ritual of sanctification, which was a cleansing that they had to do because they knew they couldn't just walk in there any old way. They had to do this right. And he went according to the commandment of the king and the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. Now, what is the debris? It's all that junk worshiping these false gods. And the Levites took it out and they carried it to the brook which was the trash heap. Verse 17, Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. And they sanctified the uh, house of the Lord in eight days. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they finished. Then they went in to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord. The altar of burnt offerings, that is the articles, and the table of showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. Now this is big, because again, they couldn't just go, well, let's go grab the stuff and let's bring it back in. There was a whole process they had to go through. They had to take every step. They had to get every part right. And he said, we have done this, we have prepared it, all of the articles are now back where they belong. Verse 20, King Hezekiah rose early. He gathered the rulers of the city, and he went up to the house of the Lord. So he's at the temple. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. For three parts. The kingdom, the sanctuary, where they were, and for the nation. Now, what offering was this? Sin offering. This was mandatory. They were required to bring this because now they're atoning for everything that had gone on prior to that moment. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they killed the bulls. The priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them, and the priests killed them. And they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and a sin offering be made for all Israel. Now let's stop. Now you notice all the steps they went talking about sprinkling the blood on the altar. These were all part of the precursor. But what did they do that you may not have picked up on? When they bring in the goats, and they did this with all the animals, is they would lay their hands upon them. Now what are they doing? Remember, the Levites and the sons of Aaron were the intermediary. They were the representatives of Israel. They are now associating themselves with their sins with the animal that is getting ready to die on behalf of them. Could they bring any animal they wanted? No, they couldn't. Could they sacrifice in any way that they wanted? No, they couldn't. Because if they did, what did they accomplish? Nothing. They butchered the thing. Start the smoker, let's eat. It does no good. It was a very specific manner of which they had to do that. So, I'm going to start, verse 24, And the priests killed them and presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. Now there's two different ones there. The sin offering, mandatory, but was the burnt offering? No. The burnt offering would be taken outside of the camp 
and burned and consumed in whole, except for one part. The only part is that they would skin the animal, and the priests were allowed to keep the skins of the animals. The only thing that was different. Now, let's go on. Verse 25. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with string instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. Now, now this part we understand, right? The bringing in the band. This is worship we can get. Because now the band's coming, and we hope they play the song we like. So they brought in the cymbals and the string instruments and the harps. You know what they didn't bring? Tambourines, because nobody should have those. Verse 26, the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began. When the trumpets and with the instruments of David, the king of Israel. So what did they do in connection? As they gave this voluntary offering, they began to play the music with it. It wasn't one without the other. They did it together. Verse 28. So all the assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished the offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. See, this is a humble heart. This is a heart that has recognized the sin of their nation and their people and their fathers and their family and all of that. And they're bringing this voluntary offering. And as soon as it was consumed and the music was going, everybody bowed their knee to the Lord. We call that repentance today. Verse 30, moreover the king Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. You notice the order that they went in. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were a, for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. This had not been done for many, many years. But look at what it said. Watch it very carefully. What took place first? The cleansing. The house of the Lord had to be prepared. The people that took care of the house of the Lord had to be prepared. And then the sin offering was offered. And then the voluntary offering began. And they began to worship God in that way. It says, verse 31 again, that, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Is a thank offering, a peace offering, an offering of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of praise? You bring it. Why? Because the sin has been atoned for. And now you're grateful. And all the assembly brought in sacrifice, as many as were of a willing heart. That means everybody who wanted to could. They didn't have to. They chose to. And get another number. And that's a lot. Verse 34. But the priests were too few. So they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than that the priests. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance that the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Now, I mean, get this, guys. You've got to understand something. There's something powerful here, and it's even hidden in the text that we often miss. But understand what happened. 
as the sin offering was given, required by them because the nation had sinned. This was a representative of the nation. They associated themselves by using the Levites. They represented Israel to God. And they came here, and that animal now took the sin and bore the sin for them. And that animal was sacrificed in the prescribed manner by clean people. And then voluntarily they came amongst themselves, being so grateful for that, now they are right with Yahweh, that they are going to bring these sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of thanksgiving. And they're going to be consumed entirely. And it was so much so, you know, you may have caught it, they couldn't skin the animals. They had to get help because there were so many of them. Imagine what this world would look like if that were the case. But why did they skin the animals? What would, like, as I said, that skin belonged to the priest. It was a representative of something. This was the burnt offering that would take place outside of the camp. Why is that powerful? What happened when Jesus was on the cross? What did it say they did? They cast lots to divide his garments. And Jesus was a burnt offering. And just because of that, we go outside the camp and we associate with him. Do you guys get the imagery? What does this matter? We bring a sacrifice of praise. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Does it say just how you should do it? Oh, as a matter of fact, it does. It should be holy and acceptable to God. Because this is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, when we talk about a living sacrifice, this is a reference back to something very, very specific. No sacrifice ever lived. Not one. The ultimate sacrifice didn't live. He died. But he had a trump card. He came back. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and we have to do it in a certain way. Holy, set apart, sanctified, renewed and acceptable to him worship is not about our desires our wants our cares it is about how he wants to be worshiped do you know what the number one marker of every revival that's ever taken place is we read about revivals we hear about these things and we hear about a lot of the supernatural stuff that happens and that's incredible do you know what the number one marker is it starts with repentance. Because you have a bunch of people who start doing things in their own way and become childish, for lack of a better term. This is all about me, and I'm going to make it about me. And whether they ever use those exact words, that's how we act. And just like that time, when Hezekiah came, he's like, no, we can't do what they did. Because now there's enmity between us and God. We've got to fix this. And we've got to change this. Because God has a prescribed manner of which He desires to be worshipped. And just like with the sacrifices that they brought, we bring a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks and praise to God. That we bow our hearts, that we live our lives as holy and acceptable to Him. Because many of us today, in the body of Christ, are bringing strange fire into the temple. We're bringing what we want not what God wants. Our lives are a reflection of our thought lives. Understanding who God is and who I am in relationship with Him. And ultimately, as a result of both of those things, how I worship Him matters. 
Because it's not just about music. Did they bring music? Yep, they sure did. So we're going to sing another song. And we're going to take a minute. As we, let's stand up. As we get here, and we're going to sing this as a song you guys know. We're going to sing this together. But as we do it, it's called What a Beautiful Name. It's a song about Him and not us. And too often we get caught up in the monotony and in, in the minutia of what's going on. And we lose sight of why we're here. And what we're to do. So let's just bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Because He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be exalted. Father, we just worship you. And we magnify you. We just worship you, Jesus. Today's all about him, church. We say it every week. But right now, I want you to check your heart. I want you to look inside. Because some of you guys are carrying baggage that you don't need to carry. And some of you guys are carrying hurt that you don't need to carry. And some of you guys have allowed yourself to be offended, and you shouldn't. Because ultimately it's about Him. We worship Jesus. Just your own words, just cry to Him. Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, your love was greater. So what could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ my King. What a wonderful name it is. And nothing compares to this. 
What a wonderful name it is. It's the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. It's the name of Jesus Christ, my King. A wonderful name it is. And nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. All right, church, let's just lift up our hands and with your own words cry out to him. We magnify you, Lord Jesus. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. We just lift you up and exalt you in this place, Lord. Whoa, God, we just repent. We worship you, Lord. Take away the burden, Jesus. Take away the hurt. Take away the pain. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. Just cry out to him. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Lord. We bow our hearts before you, Jesus. Because death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grief. The heavens are roaring in the praise of your glory. Before you are raised to life again. And you have no rival. You have no equal. And now and forever, God, you reign. And yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Sing it again. Because death could not hold you. And the veil tore before you. And you silenced the boast. Of sin and grave, the heavens are roaring in the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. Sing it out. Yes, you have no rival and you have no equal. And now and forever, God, you reign. And yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. Sing it out. A powerful name it is. It's the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is, and nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is, it's the name of Jesus. Sing it again. What a powerful name it is. Sing it to him. What a powerful name it is, it's the name of Jesus Christ, 
Let's just lift up our hands and worship Him. If you believe that's true, that is a powerful name. It's the name above every name. The name of which every knee will bow. That every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And today we have this opportunity together to humble our hearts before Him. To worship Him. To bring that sacrifice of praise. To lift up His name. It is the name by which we are set free. It is the name that makes demons tremble. It is the name that breaks down every bond of the enemy, that nothing can withstand against that name. Oh, Lord, we worship you. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, God. We worship you, Jesus. It's the time now to repent, church, to humble your hearts before him. To just magnify him. We worship Jesus. Because death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. And you silenced the boast of sin and grief. And the heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised. And to life again, and you have no rival, you have no equal, and now and forever, God, you reign. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory, and yours is the name above all names. Yes, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. It's the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against the Spirit of the Lord is moving in this place and He's speaking now and He's saying that you have a choice to make today. In this moment, in this hour, in this day, you have a choice to make today. Much of the church today comes near to Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him and the church has allowed that to take place. Because we've allowed the cares of this world, we've allowed the things of the enemy, the things that come against this knowledge of God to stand in the way. You've allowed a hurt, you've allowed a fence, you've allowed people to stand in the way of the presence of the Most High King. You're out chasing signs, wonders, and miracles when right here, now God is moving in your midst. The opportunity to leave today different, you need to bow your heart to Him. We worship you, Jesus. Father, we repent. Lord, we're standing in the gap for those loved ones that we have, those that maybe serve you, Lord, and we're standing in, Lord, we repent for our representation of who you are, where we have not met the mark, where we don't live our lives, that your name is powerful. And we know that is so because death could not hold you. 
that you silence death. You silence sin. You silence all of those things, Lord. You were raised to life. And you did all of it for us. We repent for our arrogance. We love you, Lord Jesus. We will love you, Lord Jesus. Lord, more powerful, more mighty, more giving, more merciful, more compassionate than we can ever know, than we can ever grasp or understand, Lord. Because death could not hold you. The veil tore before you, silenced the ghost of sin and fear. The heavens are at the praise of your glory, for you are raised into life again, and you have no rival. And you have no equal, cried out, and now and forever, God, you reign in our lives, Lord. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory, and yours is the name above all names, because death could not hold you. The veil tore before you, and you silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring to the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again, and you have no rival. And you have no equal, and now and forever, God, you reign. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory, and yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. It's the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. And nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. And the name of Jesus. And Lord, we stand here with humble hearts. Hearts devoted to you. Lord, as we bring that sacrifice of praise to worship you, and we do it because of what you've done. We do it because of who you are. We do it because of your love and your mercy that you poured out on us. 
Father, we repent for the areas that we have taken things into our own hands. Worship is just one of those, Lord. We repent to where we have no longer allowed ourselves to be humbled by you. But we've allowed our attitude and our arrogance to carry us through. Lord, I pray that we step beyond the fact that you're our Savior, but we truly make you the Lord of our lives, of every part of our lives. Not just the parts that people see, Lord, but our, our home lives and our work lives, Lord, that everything will be done unto you, done for your glory, done for your name. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we are your temple. That we carry your spirit with us everywhere we go. Lord, I pray that you quicken our hearts to the things that need to be changed. That you'd be honored in everything we say and do. That when we speak, that we're conscious that the fruit of our lips ought to be given Thanks and praise to you. I thank you, Lord, for your spirit moving in this place. And I thank you that you're quickening hearts. You're raising up a people that are devoted to you, that love you, that want to know you more. That will never be satisfied with the things of the past that we're pressing on to the greater movements that you have in our lives, Lord. And we're, we're of service to you. That as we continue to learn who we are, but not just who, but who we belong to. That how we were bought with the price and we no longer belong to ourselves. Our lives are no longer ours, but we live our lives holy and acceptable before you as a living sacrifice. Knowing every day, Lord, that we represent you to the world around us. And we pray, Lord, that those people will see that compassion, that mercy, that love everywhere we go. I thank you, Lord, that you're moving in this place, that you're raising us up so that we can be greater for you. Father, I thank you that you open doors of opportunities. We go out of this place today as we leave here, that we don't just stop worshiping, that our lives are reflective as a life set apart for you, sanctified by you, to be used for you. And that every day, opportunity knocks that we can share the gospel to show them what you have done for them. May our lives be a reflection of your goodness. Father, we give you the glory and honor in this place and we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do in our lives. That we are stepping out of a place of lip service and that our hearts, our actions, and our words will be representative of who you are as we continue to grow. We give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God's good, church. You guys have a blessed week. We'll see you next week.